Amen. Good morning. Am I getting double mic'd here? Good morning. As uh, our brother Sean said a moment ago, my name is Russell Berger, and most of you probably know me. I see a lot of faces that I don't recognize, but I had the privilege of serving as a pastor here for a few years, uh, and I have to say that I am just blown away by the evidence of God's grace in this church and how many new members are here, how many faithful members are serving here, uh, and just how spiritually healthy uh, you guys appear to be. It's, it's so encouraging. There's also a lot of uh, little logistical differences that I've come to appreciate. So I, I came here this morning to preach, as, as Sean said, on Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11, and I did what I used to do if I had the chance to preach here, which was pull out the Black Pew Bible, flip to the right page, and then write the number on my hand so that I could make sure to tell everybody. But you already, you already did that. You put that in the bulletin now, so that's, that's excellent. Uh, but if you will, please go ahead and open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as you will see in your handout, in the pamphlet, the Pew Bible has it on page 785. Verses 1 through 11, and listen as I read the word of the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle. Swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the prophets, for the visions that you gave them, for the foretelling that you gave them. Lord, we thank you that even now, thousands of years later, this word is profitable for us, that we can learn from it about you, about your nature and your character. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in a special way this morning as your word is preached. Be with me, protect me from error, and Lord, bless this teaching. Amen. 
So one of the things that I love about Sixth Avenue Community Church, to get back to that topic, is that you all sing a wide range of songs, and you pray a wide variety of different types of prayers, and that's unusual for churches today. I don't know if you've visited a lot of other churches outside of this one, but my church that I'm now a member at, Westlawn Baptist in Huntsville, we tend to sing songs that are always joyful, always triumphant. I, I feel like, almost like our minister of music has like a catalog, and there's a range in there of glad songs to extra glad songs. And he just sort of takes one out each day, and, and, and we praise God with gladness. And that's a good thing. But it's not necessarily a good thing when that's all you do, when you sing and when you pray corporately. But that seems to be what we want as a people, as a culture. Evangelicals want joyful music. We, we want positive and uplifting songs. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. This is, I'm going to read the lyrics, briefly, the lyrics to one of the most popular contemporary Christian songs out there today by one of the most popular contemporary Christian bands. Here we go. I'm marked by your beauty, lost in your eyes. I want to walk in your presence like Jesus did. Your glory surrounds me and I'm overwhelmed. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. So let's set aside for the moment that that sounds like a song you'd write about a teenage sweetheart. And this is supposed to be a song about the God of the universe. How does this type of lyric compare to the hymns, to the songs that we see in our own Bibles? So the, the Psalms, it's the Bible's hymn book. And in the Psalms, we see sorrow. We see lament. We see admissions of being afraid throughout the Psalms. Look, consider Psalm 55 and just compare this to the, the lyrics that we just heard. My heart murmurs within me. And the terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling grip me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and find rest. Or Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 44. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O oh Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? This is just a sample of, of what the Psalms and the prophets in our Old Testament often sound like. So why do so few modern Christian hymns and, and the singing of evangelical churches today, why do we so seldom hear this singing? This, the singing of miserable Christians, so to put it. Well, in an article on this very topic, a faithful brother named Carl Truman asks this important question. Has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, about health, wealth, and happiness silently corrupted the content of our worship? Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience, end quote. So maybe our worship has been corrupted by the prosperity gospel. Maybe we just try and look past those raw, 
sort of difficult aspects of the Bible because we're worried that they're going to turn people off. We want to keep the emotions uplifting and positive. Well, either way, singing nothing but glad, joyful songs and praying nothing but glad, joyful prayers is not equipping the church for reality. Well, thankfully, the Bible, and I I pray that you'll see in this text this morning, we have something that will equip us for real life. So though we are removed from the events that the prophet Habakkuk is is talking about in this text by over 2,000 years, understand that God has given us texts like these to benefit us today. He knows that though he has redeemed us, though that we are saved through Christ, We're not pulled out of this world yet. We're still living in a fallen and broken world. And life will not be a constant emotional high. So this morning we're going to start by asking some of the same questions that we see the prophet Habakkuk asking in these first four verses. Why is there injustice, Lord? Where are you? Why are these bad things happening around us? Why do you seem so slow to respond? And then we're going to look at God's response, which is, Verses 5 through 11. This is the Lord responding to Habakkuk's questions and cries. And we're going to see what his judgment of the nation of Judah might mean for us today. So for the note takers here, there's going to be three points to this sermon. Give you sort of a skeleton here, to some, some pegs to hang your hat on as you, as you walk through this content. Point number one, justice perverted. Number one, justice perverted. Number two, justice delayed. Justice delayed. And number three, justice portrayed. Justice perverted, justice delayed, and justice portrayed. So point one, justice perverted. Recall that in Israel's history, the nations split into two kingdoms. So you have the north, the northern tribes, which the Bible will call Israel or Ephraim, split off from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which the Bible just kind of calls Judah. They're just lumped together. And fighting and division led to this split. Uh, They ended up with different kings. So you had the northern kingdom had northern kings, and the southern kingdom had southern kings. It's a lot to keep track of if you've ever tried to read through Kings and Chronicles in your Old Testament. However, one of the things that these nations, despite their division, had in common was their kings were always pretty terrible. So what would happen throughout Israel's history and through Judah's history is an evil king would be uh, raised up and that evil king would lead the people away from God and into idolatry. And so then God would send his prophets uh, to try and call them back. And eventually, at, at a certain point, Israel's idolatry and wickedness grows to such a height that the Lord sends the Assyrian army in to destroy them. And they are utterly wiped out by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrians, having just destroyed Israel, they're right next door to Judah. And Judah is the southern kingdom where Habakkuk is prophesying from in this text. Assyria is right there. And yet Assyria doesn't destroy Judah because God, again, sends one of his prophets. And this prophet leads the king to repentance. Does anybody know from your Old Testament who that prophet was and who that king was? Pop quiz. Anybody? It's okay. I can stay here for a while. Isaiah and Hezekiah, that's right. So the prophet Isaiah, God mercifully sends him to lead the people of Judah back to repentance through their king. And Hezekiah tears his clothes in repentance and turns to the Lord for mercy. 
And the Lord strikes down tens of thousands of Assyrians overnight. And Judah is miraculously saved from the destruction that they deserve. You'd think a miracle like that would stick in their heads. You'd think that would prominently stand out in the minds of God's people. But if you've read much of your Old Testament, or if you've paid much attention to human nature in general, you know that we tend to very quickly forget the merciful deliverances of God in our lives and be tempted right back towards sin and idolatry. And that's exactly what happens in Israel and in Judah in this case. That's where we find Habakkuk in today's text. So the threat of the Assyrians and their miraculous delivery was about 100 years prior to Habakkuk's prophecy. And already Habakkuk is lamenting the evil around him, the violence, the iniquity, the destruction, the injustice like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly, the proverb says. So Habakkuk sees this wickedness around him. Injustice is the norm in Judah at this time. He says the wicked surround the righteous. There's this, this image of nowhere to run for God's righteous people. They are under the thumb of the unjust and the evil. So rather than offering sacrifices, just to give you some context for what's happening in Judah at the time, rather than offering sacrifices in the temple according to God's law, the people of Judah would climb altars that were built to pagan gods and they would go to these high places and they would sacrifice their children. They would visit cult prostitutes. They would, the, the wealthy Jews would ignore the protections in God's law for the poor and for slaves and they would abuse these rather than care for them. They would oppress them. Others would opportunistically buy up land from the poor and keep it to themselves. They would ignore all of the jubilee provisions in God's law that were meant to redistribute that land back as a mercy and free slaves as a mercy every seven years. And so this level of injustice in society has just it's led to a point where things just clearly aren't as they should be. And Habakkuk is crying out to his God. It's important to note here, there's a relationship between the idolatry of Judah and the violence and evil and injustice that Habakkuk is crying out about. And that is that the paralyzation of the law, the injustice, is a product of the idolatry. Injustice flows from idolatry, in other words. And that means that this, side, this sort of wickedness and this corruption of the law, that's not just a, a problem for ancient Israel and ancient Judah. That's a problem for all of us. It's a problem that began not in Judah, but in the garden. When Adam disobeyed God and turned from God's commands and decided to be a God like God, make a God out of himself. Deciding for himself what was right and what was wrong. Many... Anthropologists will say that man's first invention was the stone tool. Well, man's first invention actually was idolatry. And it's that idolatry from which all other evil is flowing throughout human history. This is why, for example, prosperity theology, the idea that life, if you're faithful and obedient to God, will be nothing but health, wealth, and comfort, is such a lie. It's a lie because no matter how obediently no matter how faithfully you live in this life, you are still in a fallen world. You are still surrounded by other sinners. 
sinners that are idolatrous, sinners that will commit injustices. Whether at you or whether you're the victim of those things, you will be witness to them. Now this lie of this prosperity theology, you are all probably fairly well inoculated to that, knowing the preaching from this pulpit. If you hear people promising you improved salaries and healed sickness and nice cars, if you would simply give more money to your church and be more obedient to God, I I reckon most of you would recognize that as a heresy. But there's a softer, more subtle version of this same lie. I wonder if you would all recognize it. Turn to Jesus and you'll never again experience pain or sorrow or sadness or doubt. He'll take all of those things away forever. The promise is different. We're not talking about shiny cars here. We're talking about emotional satisfaction. But it's still a lie. As long as we are in this world, we will experience sorrow and suffering and injustice. We will witness it, even if we don't experience it ourselves. God does not take His elect and snatch them right from the world as soon as things start going badly for us. Even here in this text, Habakkuk, God's prophet, is living through these terrible times. He is witness to them. And God, nowhere in this book, you can read the whole thing when you, when you go home today, you will not find God giving him an escape hatch. Habakkuk must live through this evil. It would be good to remember that in our, in our little slice of history that we find ourselves living, whatever piece of history that our, our lives occupy, we might find ourselves in the golden years of a Christian nation. But like Habakkuk, we may find ourselves in the midst of its apostasy and decline. In fact, we are far more likely to find ourselves in that second situation. As individuals, we should expect to encounter violence, injustice, and wickedness in this world. The same things Habakkuk is lamenting here. Paul in the New Testament tells us that if we wish to live a godly life, we will be persecuted. He says that through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter tells us that the Lord will put us through fiery trials for the purpose of testing our faithfulness. So brothers and sisters, if you're a servant of Christ, if you follow Him, you should expect to find yourself at some point in your life crying out to God like Habakkuk is here. Remember also, we have a Savior who Himself suffered violence and betrayal and injustice. And unlike us, He didn't deserve any of it. It should comfort you to know that when you find yourself here, you're following in your Lord's footsteps. Let's go to the second point, justice delayed. Habakkuk cries out, O Lord, verse 2, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? These are not the words of a man who's seeing bad stuff for the first time. It's obvious that he's endured something for years. This evil around him has only been growing. And yet the Lord, for some reason, that Habakkuk doesn't seem to understand, 
He's not intervening. So what should we make of God's timing here? Why is, why is he delaying? Where is his justice? Well, we know that God works in history. We know that he does respond to prayer. We know that he does intervene in our circumstances, often for our good. Habakkuk knew this too. And Habakkuk, when we read these words, we should understand him to really be describing what he is feeling. He feels like God is ignoring his people. His heart is broken over the wickedness that he sees around him and he is desperate for God to do something. And this, this language, where are you God? Just understand, brothers and sisters, this is just part of the biblical language of lament. And you should feel comfortable talking like this. Our brother Will prayed like this earlier during his prayer petition. He prayed a lament, God, Why does it seem like you're not here? Where are you? Where is your justice? You haven't looked around closely at the wickedness in this world and wanted to ask, where are you, God? Why do you delay? It may be that you just haven't paid close attention to what's going on around us. Did you know that there's, as an example, there's an abortion clinic in Huntsville, not very far from where I live, Uh, Sean and I have done ministry out there before in the past. And every day at this abortion clinic, pregnant mothers walk in with the intention of killing their unborn children. Every day, little bodies are cut into pieces and thrown in the trash. Little image bearers of God. Every day, injustice is done. Innocent blood is shed. And when that becomes a reality to you, when you see these women walk through the parking lot into that building and not come out for hours and then come out with tears in their eyes, you have to ask God, where are you? Why do you delay? One thing that we should remember is that this is not a new question. Habakkuk is asking this question, God, where are you? And over 2,000 years later, here we are asking this question, God, where are you? Why do you delay? One thing we should remember when we ask this question is that God's primary concern in history is not our personal comfort, but his glory. As Christians, the Holy Spirit, who indwells our hearts, is constantly reshaping and recalibrating our desires to that same end. He's making it so that our greatest concern is not our personal comfort, but God's glory. So another way to say this is that in the end of this life, every single person who's chiefly concerned with the glory of God and God's praises will be eternally and infinitely satisfied with how history has unfolded. Every detail. Just look look back. Here we see Habakkuk lamenting injustice. And yet we know that God used these evil idolaters in Judah and Judah's destruction and judgment as a way to bring the Savior of the world into the world. As a symbol and a teaching and a lesson for us as a shadow of the ultimate judgment and the ultimate salvation to come. He used this evil for great good for us and for His glory. 
Look at other examples in history. Look at the Roman Empire. When Rome was spilling the blood of Christian martyrs, left and right, God was glorified by that supernatural witness. When Rome eventually became a Christian empire, God was glorified by the triumph of this humble, foolish gospel over the worldly wisdom of the Romans. When the Roman Empire fell and Christians were being murdered in the streets by barbarian tribes from northern Europe and enslaved, God was glorified as they took the gospel to the darkest corners of pagan Europe. You see, when we look back, we see that God glorifies himself through the events of history, even the worst ones. His, his use of history is like a canvas. He's painting in eras and dynasties and empires. And when we look back, we see it. And yet when we look at our own lives, it's really hard to see how the evil in our lives is being used by God, isn't it? It's hard to know. Why is the Lord slow here? Why is he allowing me to witness this injustice and this violence? But God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. And if we could trust him in his providence yesterday, we can trust him in his providence today. This can be hard for us, especially when that evil that we see is right in our face day after day. It's just hard for Habakkuk. And remember, brothers and sisters, if it's hard for God's prophet, it's going to be hard for you. It's hard to remember. We want God's justice now. But have you ever stopped and just thought about what that would mean? Consider for a moment, what would it mean for God to bring his justice to the earth today? Jesus' disciples wanted him to bring justice uh, when the Lord appeared to them in the, in the beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he comes to them and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples wanted Jesus to pick up the sword, overthrow the, the tyranny of Roman rule, and restore the physical kingdom of Israel on earth right then to judge his enemies. Christ's answer was no. You see, what the disciples didn't understand is that if Jesus had come right then to consummate his kingdom, if he'd come right then with the sword, they would have been the first people crushed under his wrath. The justice of God, like all of God's attributes, is perfect. And to break even one aspect of God's perfectly holy law demands that we suffer for eternity under his justice. Every moment that the world continues to rotate around the sun, every moment that we continue to breathe is another mercy of God's delayed justice. It's another day for sinners like you and I to turn and trust Him and be saved from the justice that we once deserved. So though we lament God's delay in justice, though we rightly look around at the evil in the world like the abortion clinic and say, Lord, bring your justice now. At the same time, we should consider that it's only by this delay of God's justice that any of us have had the chance to hear the gospel and believe. So let's not be too quick to be the last ones to the party and shut the door behind us. We should desire God's justice, but we should also recognize that this delay is a sign, not that he doesn't care about our suffering, but that he has mercy on sinners. As the word says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Point three, justice portrayed. In verse five here, as I mentioned before, we move from Habakkuk's crying to the Lord to the Lord's response. God's silence is broken. And though he responds to Habakkuk's prayer, I don't imagine that this is the response that Habakkuk was looking for. As you see, even during this period of long delay where Habakkuk is waiting on the Lord, the Lord has been working. He has been busy. He says, For I am doing a work in your days that if you would not believe, that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, these the Babylonians, and he is raising them up to judge Judah in exactly the same way he'd threatened to destroy them with the Assyrians a hundred years earlier. It turns out that Babylon, this wicked and powerful nation, has been busy. God's been working through the providence of history and he will crush them. He will crush Judah for what they've done, for turning away from him. Now, I don't think it's easy for us today to understand the horror behind a judgment like this. We don't have very much context for imagining these ancient sieges and and armies clashing. We tend to think of Hollywood movies which are actually still pretty glamorous. There's still like a little bit of beauty and there's some glory and there's winners and losers. Ancient warfare like this, the type of judgment that God was threatening would have been horrific. Every man in Judah's army would have been slaughtered. The temple, the dwelling place of God would have been utterly defiled. Every woman would have been violated. Every person who was left alive would have been stripped naked, humiliated, and most would have been left in chains as slaves to be drug away to serve foreign masters in a foreign land. Now this might seem harsh, but remember in God's word, through Moses, the Lord has literally told Israel, this is what will happen if you break my covenant. In Deuteronomy, we see these promises, the curses of the law for Israel's idolatry for their adultery against the Lord. And what's amazing about this is not just the specificity with which God says, I will bring another nation to punish you and you will become captives. What's amazing about this is the Lord's patience. How many times Israel turned away from him, broke his commandments, committed apostasy and idolatry, and yet the Lord over and over again, in his mercy, sent them prophets, sent them reminders, called back to his people over and over again, patiently warning them. And yet despite all this, despite seeing the northern kingdom fall to the same type of judgment, Judah persists in their wickedness. Again, to this point, God has shown incredible mercy and incredible patience. Now he will show them justice. So what does this mean to us? This promise of Judah's destruction. As as Christians in America today, we are not Israel. We are not Judah. In fact, no nation today has the same sort of special covenant relationship that Judah had with God in this text. 
As Christians, we're in a different covenant relationship with God, a better one. We're in a relationship where we're no longer bound as God's people by ethnic and national identity and, and geographical borders. We're scattered throughout many nations, many cultures, many tongues. And our covenant can't be broken. Our covenant has a curse that was laid on Christ on our behalf. So there's some distance between us and this text. So how do we understand this? Well, if you're not in Christ, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, understand that this text is a picture of the judgment that God will someday bring against the world. And like all the spiritual realities that we see sort of foreshadowed in the Old Testament, this is just a dim reflection of the horror of the judgment that awaits you outside of Christ. Did you know that God has called you to put your faith in Him just as He called the people of Judah, just as He called the Israelites? Maybe you've considered that. Maybe you've considered putting your faith and your trust in God. But you found the cost to be too high. Maybe the pleasure of your sin was too good to let go of. Maybe you worried about what your friends or your coworkers might think. You didn't want to lose their approval and their praise. If that's the case, consider how patient God has been with you. Like the people of Judah, every day of your life, He has had both the opportunity and the grounds to show you justice for breaking His law for sinning against him, and yet he hasn't. That's a mercy. But again, he's the same God, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And like the people of Judah, there will be an end to his patience with you. But God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And that way is through his Son. God became man. He sent his son to earth to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then took our punishment, the justice, the wrath that we deserve for our sins, and he bore that on a cross. He was resurrected from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and rules from heaven. And if you trust in him and you turn from your sins, you will be spared from the justice of God that you deserve. And Christ's righteous life, his perfection will be credited to you. And you will spend the rest of eternity enjoying God's presence, praising him and giving him glory for all that he's done in history. If you want to know more about what that means, if you have questions about that gospel, feel free to find me after this service or or talk to Sean or one of the other elders here or even just the person sitting next to you if they're a member of this church. Now, the Bible has always pointed to this truth, this gospel that I just shared with you. God has always shown his intent to rescue sinners through his mercy from his judgment. This is not like a plan B that he came up with halfway through history. Christ was the Ark of Noah in the Old Testament. That's what that pictured. He was protecting us, his people, from the flood of God's judgment. Christ was the messenger dragging us out of the town of Sodom before God consumed it with fire. He's the blood on the lintel that the Israelites put over their doorpost so that the angel of the Lord might pass over them and spare them from God's judgment. He's the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the desert 
that we might look upon it and be purified from the poison of sin. And if you are in him, you are like the captives taken out of Israel into Babylon, spared from death, who will someday be returned in glory to that holy city. We see this throughout the Bible. God has saved a people through himself, from himself, from himself and for himself. And these truths have a deep impact on the way we read texts like this. So while we lament like Habakkuk, we lament the violence and injustice in our world, it changes the way we lament. See, lament is really a gift from God. By giving us this text, God is showing us that we will experience similar situations. And he's providing us a model to imitate in Habakkuk's cries. This isn't grumbling against God. This is not Job's wife telling him to go curse God and die. This is turning toward God. Sharing our feelings with him of the suffering that we're going through. And at the same time, demonstrating our dependence on him by turning to him. Lament is a bit like having a difficult workout. I don't know how many of you have exercised a little too hard at one point. Like maybe you're going to run a certain distance at a certain speed and you got into it and realized this is not happening. So you take a break or you take a knee and you catch your breath. That's fine, but you can't stay there. That's what lament is like for those of us who are in Christ. You see, God has allowed us to flip to the back of the book. We know that judgment is not the end. We know that the suffering that we experience in this life full of sinners around us is not the end. We can have complete and total confidence in the power of Christ to deliver us from the pains of this world, to deliver us from death, to right all wrongs and fix all injustices, and to wipe every tear from every eye. And so our lament can only go so far. It only goes so deep. And this is why we find so often in the prophets and the Psalms that lament, by the time you get to the end of that lament, it's turned into praise. And so we ought to turn to God in our lament just as Habakkuk does. And that's why I began this sermon on the subject of how you sing and pray as a church. I know you, 6th Avenue, I know you sing songs that confess your weakness before God. I know you pray prayers that lament his slowness in bringing justice to the world. I know we acknowledge the pain and suffering, the, the misery that we feel as Christians. I know you do that. And I am so thankful for you doing that as a church. So really, this morning I just want to encourage you. I want to thank you for taking miserable Christians like me who are suffering through difficulty and sin and just helping us express that to God, bringing us back to Him in the midst of that. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Now maybe you're a visitor here or maybe you're just a relatively new member of the church and you're not really sure what all this lamenting stuff is really about. Maybe it's actually something you've experienced here somewhere else and it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's hard for you to share the hard parts of life with God, to pray that out loud, to use words like this, like Habakkuk used. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear? To many of us, that may even sound almost blasphemous, like to accuse the Lord of not being able to hear something. That's ridiculous. He hears everything. My encouragement to you is very simple. Read the prophets. 
Read Habakkuk, read Jeremiah, read Elijah, read the Psalms. Read them until you've, you've absorbed this language and this vocabulary and the grammar that Habakkuk uses here. So that you can properly lament, that you can use God's word to lament back to God, so to speak. Read the prophets until your values and priorities are their values and priorities and vice versa. Read them until you're comfortable talking with God about your pain. Recognize also that suffering through the injustice and wickedness of this world is a corporate event. It's a communal practice. That means that as a church, you are called to share in the suffering of one another. And as an individual, as a member of this church, you have a ministry that requires you to participate in this corporate lament and be able to lament with your brother or sister who is bearing a significant burden. Just in case you have a nagging sense that expressing sorrow and woe like this as a Christian might show a lack of faith. Just remember that our Lord himself lamented in this exact way. Mark 14 verse 32 says, verse 32 through 36, excuse me. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So when you find yourself crying out like the prophet Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? How long will I cry for help and you will not hear? Know that there's not an easy answer for that. But also know that in him you will find a savior who has cried out in the same lament, who has suffered sorrow, who has suffered betrayal, who has suffered all the sins of this world without sin. And understand that because Christ did take the cup of God's wrath, because he did persevere in trusting the Father, in him our lament is never the end. In him we have a steady and sure anchor, as we will sing here in a moment. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us the prophets, prophets like Habakkuk. We pray, Lord, that the wickedness in our world, the violence that we see around us, that these things would be real to us, Lord, and at the same time as we cry out to you, we would know that you hear us, that you have pity on us, that you have mercy on us, and that we can ultimately trust in your son Jesus to carry us through these things. We pray, Lord, All of this in the name of your Son. Amen.